Let's have a word of prayer, my friends. Lord, in your great wisdom and compassion, you have given us the gift of prayer, and we seek to take advantage of that, to use that, to be blessed by it right now. In prayer, you call us to be still, to be silent, to turn our attention away from the trials and troubles and tribulations that we face right now, and to turn instead to gaze into your heart, to remember your faithfulness to us, to be filled with gratitude for having brought us safely thus far to this place and time. You call us to remember stories from the past that teach us to be not afraid, that teach us to be courageous, to be faithful, to be loving, to be kind, to be compassionate, and especially to put all of our hope in you. We thank you for these deep spiritual truths that are part of our spiritual nourishment for this day. And we ask that you would continue to build this faithfulness into us, this strength into us that we know comes only from you. Do that as we gather, as we share our hearts and minds, as we share our fears and confusions, as we share our ignorance and share our knowledge, as we simply share life with each other. We ask that you, the author of life, would give it to us today in abundance that we might share with others. We pray that in Jesus. Amen. Is there a buzz coming from over there? There we go. Maybe somebody's cell phone is rebelling. Is it coming from the... It's coming from somewhere. Oh, well. Okay. Let's keep on going. So, we are talking about a story that has some different episodes, but it's all the same story. Let's remember that. We're talking about the story of how God rescued Hebrew slaves from bondage and no future and delivered them into freedom and a future. The stories we'll talk about today are part of that story. They are the foundational story of a particular people. They are the way these people understand themselves and God and who they are. And in their story, God means to inform everyone else of who he is and who they are and what we are all about. That's what being chosen means. Chosen not for privilege, but chosen for responsibility, chosen for a purpose. So as we go into this story of the Hebrew people, the escaped slaves, the released slaves, moving through a sea, and a story that we know a lot about, but because we know a lot about it, we also don't know a lot about it. We think we know everything and there's more to learn. Let's, let's remember a couple of important facts before we start reading the text itself. Let's remember that the deliverance through the Red Sea is part of the larger story of God's redemption, right? This story is told not just as an ancient story with one group of people in one historical moment, 
but it is a story that has significance in a cosmic sense because it's a story that reveals who all of us are, what all of our problems are, and what God's solution is to all of that. There, is, there, are, there are deep truths here about our existence, both our individual existence and our corporate existence, and God's plan for all of existence. So there's a lot at stake in this story. The story is told from out of a particular historical experience, but like all historical experience, you can look at the event from different perspectives, and the retelling of the event over time begins to take on a character of its own and overtones of its own, to, excuse me, to where you can potentially get lost in the detail, lost in the weeds, so to speak, uh, and, and miss the whole story itself. As with all historical telling of stories, there are some details that are fuzzy that don't necessarily make sense to us that we don't know about, but in the overall story, we have an important picture. Let me say that I've been impressed with Gerald Fretham's interpretation of this or his characterization of this story. He's one of the primary commentators that I'm looking at. He says that the story of the crossing of the Red Sea is like an impressionistic painting. Do you know about Impressionism? Anybody here study art before, right? The Impressionists, that, that way of painting pictures, takes a lot of color and a lot of form and puts it all together into a very forceful, almost emotional statement, but without a lot of specific detail. Okay, think of it in this way. Think of, think of old fuzzy photographs where the edges are not quite precise and crisp, right? Uh, think, of, think of old TV shows uh, where it's hard to make out some of the details, but you still know what's going on. Impressionism doesn't want to show you every little vein and every little leaf and every single tree. It wants you to experience the forest, Right? And so this is, in some sense, impressionistic writing. It helps us experience a whole thing. If we push the details too much sometimes, uh, we, we lose the ultimate force of it. Does that make sense to you? I, that, to me, that's a helpful way of looking at this. Now, in this story, we have a continuing uh, story that started at the very beginning of the Bible. Do you remember the first story in the Bible? God made everything. God made everything with a purpose, with a plan. God made everything to be good. God made everything to bless us and to give us an opportunity to enjoy the fact of existence, to enjoy the fact that we are, except we messed it up. <laughs> we moved away from our creator and the power of creation. And in moving away from it, we destroy it. The whole story of the Bible, you could argue that the whole story of humanity is a story of moving away from the thing that makes us be in the first place. And so this story is a story about how God reaches out yet again to save us from the non-existence that is possible as we move away from God, right? There are forces of deconstruction, if you will, decreation and the force of creation, the force of good. In that sense, there's cosmic significance. Some people want to talk about the Red Sea a lot. Uh, 
uh, because obviously the Red Sea uh, is important in this, right? What's the most impressive fact in this story, right? That the waters are parted and people walk through the sea, okay? And uh, we don't really know if this was the Red Sea, if this was a reed sea, a marshy area. It's very difficult to, uh, to interpret the Hebrew words used here and to put this in an exact location. So let's not worry about that too much. Let's worry more about what the experience of the Jews was and how they interpreted that experience and, and learned what that experience meant for who they are, okay, as we read through this story. So let's read the story. And uh, we'll look at the first 18 verses of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall camp opposite it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they're wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness is closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people. And they said, what have we done letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army. They overtook them, camped by the sea, by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward, but you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his chariot drivers. Let's stop there in the story. Several important things are going on here, as is usually the case. So, we've just finished telling the story of, of how finally God convinced Pharaoh to allow the Hebrew people to leave, and the Hebrew people have now left, and God leads them, 
And we're told that God decides for them to change direction and go camp in front of the sea. We have no clue where those two places are with those names that we can't pronounce. <laughs> right? Don't try to figure it out. Essentially, what we are told is that the Hebrew slaves leave and God says, go over here. And what God does is take the Hebrew people and, and, and puts them in a corner. They're cornered. They are stuck. They've gone and, and marched in front of a sea. They should have gone somewhere else to get away. But that's not what God did. He put them between a rock, the sea, and a hard place, the Egyptians. Right? Now, militarily, it was a stupid thing to do. Right? God should have been fired. He should have been, he should have been taken out of his leadership role. He should have been decommissioned. Right? But that's exactly what God said to do. And as God did that, he said... I'm going to show Pharaoh who's the boss here. Pharaoh's going to know who I am. The Egyptians are going to know who I am. Pharaoh, being a wise military leader, looks at where the Hebrews have gone. He said, ah, they've trapped themselves. Let's go get them. Let's go get them. All through this story, remember, we've told that Pharaoh keeps changing his mind. Sure, you can go. No, you can't. Okay, you can go. No, you can't. Right? Think about the pressure on Pharaoh. Let's, let's try for a moment to, to put ourselves into a sympathetic place for Pharaoh, right? He's been born into a long line of leaders that have told him he's the king, he's God, he gets to do what he wants to do. And someone's come along and said, there's another God who's in charge of everything. You wouldn't believe that. Pharaoh's in charge of running the nation of Egypt. And it's very convenient to have Hebrew slaves to do all the work. And now he's let them go. And now all of his cabinet and all of the folks in the opposition party and all of the folks writing op-ed pieces for the newspapers and all of the folks being polled by the pollsters and everybody in their coffee shops and barber shops are saying, Pharaoh blew it. So what does Pharaoh do? Hmm, maybe I blew it. Let's go get, let's go get him. We can understand that, can't we? Pharaoh is acting in a perfectly understandable, normal human way. And so in that sense, we are meant to see ourselves in Pharaoh in some sense and to understand this is a normal human situation. So the Hebrew wandering around and going to a place where they cannot militarily defend themselves, Pharaoh is going to take advantage of that. And we are told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, right? Well, there's two things going on. We've talked about this, and we probably always will have to talk about it because it's something of a mystery to us. On the one hand, Pharaoh's just doing what Pharaoh was going to do anyway. Is God responsible for that? But then God takes what Pharaoh was going to do and, and in a sense, maximizes it, enlarges it, and, and takes it to its logical conclusion. This is what Pharaoh's going to do. Okay, Pharaoh, go ahead. God lets Pharaoh do what Pharaoh wants to do. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We could say God could have come to Pharaoh and an angel and said, Pharaoh, it's not going to go well for you. Why didn't God do that? God didn't do that because something needed to happen in order to convince Pharaoh. What has God already done? All those frogs and, and, and crickets and the Nile turning red and then eventually... 
the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, not even that has convinced Pharaoh. Think of, think of, the, think of the email interchange that went on, right? Between Pharaoh and all of his advisors, right? Hi, guys, I know that we've, already, we've lost a whole generation of, of, of Egyptians, but still let's go get them. Right? That's what he does. That's what he says. So, God uses Pharaoh's will, Pharaoh's self-will against Pharaoh, right? And God's purpose is so that the Egyptians will finally realize who God is. Remember, that's been the story. Moses shows up to Pharaoh and says, my God says to do this. And Pharaoh says, I don't even know your God. <laughs> Guess what? You're going to find out who this God is. So, the Egyptians will be some of the first people to proclaim who God is. Isn't that interesting? Do you wonder ever how many Egyptians looked at the Hebrews and their God and said, hmm, maybe there is something to this God after all? We don't know. We don't know. So God is going to be revealed to everyone. Now, let's look at what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh is a brilliant politician, military leader, but even the best leaders make mistakes. Pharaoh takes his entire army. First, he takes the 600 best chariots. And then he decides to take all the rest of them. And then he decides to take all of his infantry. Everything he's got, we're told, is thrown into this one battle. Right? That's just not smart militarily, but that's exactly what Pharaoh does. Because Pharaoh's so convinced, based on all the evidence that he's going to win. If you were a betting person and you saw this situation develop, you would bet on Pharaoh. You'd be crazy if you didn't. But something else is going on here, right? The Israelites are caught between Egypt and a hard place. And in a sense, they're caught between Egypt and God. God has said, go here. And they've done that. And now they're stuck. They're stuck. But there's more to the story, right? The Israelites, because they're stuck, because they realize the hopelessness of their situation, they turn against God, they turn against Moses. Once again, we've seen it time and time again already in this story, once again, the Israelites say, you know, let's just go back to Egypt and let's just be their slaves, it'll be better for us. At least we won't die. That's understandable, isn't it? At least we won't die. The Israelites have a crisis of faith. What else is new? That, that's part of the human experience is a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith in Moses, a crisis of faith in God. You know, let's go back. And that's because the Israelites know they can't win the battle. They have some weapons, we're told, but nothing like the vastly superior armaments of the Egyptians. The Israelites make a very human, logical decision. We're going to get wiped out. Let's try to create a peace deal. Okay? So Pharaoh's being very logical. The, the Hebrew people are being very logical, very understandable. And they understand that they can't, they can't achieve their own freedom now. They're dependent on the goodwill of Pharaoh. Or maybe they're dependent on something else. What does Moses do? Right? Moses has his own crises of faith 
at different times through this story. We'll find out about more of them. But here, Moses is strong. God strengthens him. What does Moses say to the people to do? I put together a little list. It's in point number 11 on this. I think it's a good list to look at uh, because it's a, it's, it's a fundamental description of the gospel message, really, right? It's a great little list to look at. The first thing Moses says is, do not be afraid. Have you heard that story and have that, that phrase in Scripture before? All throughout the Scriptures, Right? When the angel shows up to Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am afraid. The Egyptians are coming after me. Some of you have Egyptians coming after you right now. And you know who they are. You know what it is. Okay? Do not be afraid. Stand firm. Keep the faith. Keep still. Keep still. In a little bit, God's going to say, tell them to get moving, right? There's an interesting dynamic that goes on. At one and the same time, when the, when the Hebrew people face an issue, they're meant to be quiet, be still, so that they can remember who God is and what the promise is and trust that promise. And then they move on from there, okay? Here it is. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. Keep still. Be silent. You will be saved. You will be saved. The Hebrew here, we would pronounce something like Yesu Ah. Yesu Ah. Does that sound like familiar to you? Yesu Ah. Joshua. Jesus. Jesus. Right? The name of the Savior is He saves. <laughs> right? God saves. And then the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. Wow. We don't have an army. We're not an army. We're not trained soldiers. We don't have weapons. There's a highly trained, highly efficient army coming after us, the strongest army of its time. But the Lord's going to fight for us. And then wait and see what happens, right? Now, Moses is critical in this interchange. We have talked about the fact that God uses all kinds of things in his creation, and he gets to do that because it's his creation. <laughs> God uses everything in his creation to accomplish his will. Later on, we're going to see how God uses wind, God uses fire, God uses natural, so-called natural circumstances that God sometimes jiggers for his own benefit. God uses people. God uses Moses here. What if Moses had said, we're done. We're going back. Would Aaron have stood up and said, we're going forward? Who knows? If Moses had turned around, maybe the whole thing would have been over and we might not have ever heard of the story. I don't know. So Moses is important in this. People are important uh, in God's plan, right? God uses everything to accomplish his own ends. And then God says to the Israelite people, he says to, to Moses, tell them, so this is God telling the Israelite people, tell the people to go forward. Tell the people to go forward, okay? Don't be afraid. Stand still. Gather your wits about you in some sense, right? And then trust and go forward. Now, in the story, where is forward going to take the Israelites? Directly into the sea. Yeah, yeah. 
like lemmings marching off of a cliff maybe, right? That's kind of the sense you get of it. Really? You want me to walk into the ocean? I, right. Let's see what goes on with that. Let's keep reading the story. The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. There's a lot of cool stuff going on here. One of the reasons that most people know this story better than most other stories is because it's so easy to sell to five-year-olds with a flannel graph. Because and now now maybe maybe this is a guy talk. You got chariots, you got armies, you got fights, you got lots of goods. It's exciting, isn't it? Let's make a, it would be a great movie, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It helps us to catch a sense of that excitement, that passion, that drama that's going on, because it helps us remember the story, doesn't it? If we have to just look at the drama, the passion, the excitement, then we leave so much of the meaning of the story behind. The meaning of the story is what we're, is what we're after there, right? Lots of dramatic elements, again, uh, in, in this story. So, look at what goes on. God works, as I mentioned, through the wind, through the darkness, through the fire, right? The angel of the Lord has been leading but now the leader goes to the rear of the column because that's where the threat is. The threat is not the sea. The threat is the Egyptians, right? The sea is a threatening enough place as it is. Remember the place of water? Have you ever paid attention to the baptisms I do and when I talk about the water and the baptisms? Okay. In the story of Genesis, what's the story? 
the Spirit of God moves across the face of the waters to create the dry land. The water, the sea, was understood by ancient people to be a very, very mysterious and threatening place. I would contend that it still is a mysterious and threatening place. And people who go down into the sea with just a tank of oxygen on their back and a couple of flippers, they're flipping crazy. (laughs) There's big things in the sea that could swallow you and not even think about it. You'd just be an appetizer, right? Right? The sea is the place of chaos, of darkness. It is a threat. Now, of course, we look at the sea in different ways now, and thank God there are some crazy people who will go into the sea, but I ain't one of them, okay? God's Spirit moves over the face of the waters to create dry land. God moves in the Red Sea to take people directly into that most threatening place and say, I'm going to save you through that threatening place, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? This isn't the only time that the people are going to have to go through water. Later on, after the wandering in the wilderness, the people are camped on the plains of Moab, and they're getting ready to go down into the Jordan River Valley and march towards the west and go through the Jordan River, right? There's a whole lot of stuff going on here with the forces of creation that seem to threaten us, but it's not creation that threatens the Hebrew people. It is the people in God's creation, okay? God says, interestingly, here's 600 chariots plus a whole bunch of other chariots plus the whole army, and what does God do? How does God fight for the Hebrew people? He says to Moses, just raise your hand right? One hand against the entire army. And that one hand is raised and the waters are divided and the people go through the waters. Some people who want to talk about the Red Sea as a reed sea want to talk about a marshy area and there's a huge wind that dries out the marshland and the people go over that and then the The Egyptians drive their chariots into it and their wheels get bogged down. We're told that happens here and they can't get out. Maybe that's what's going on, right? Or maybe it is more of a Cecil B. DeMille moment where where the waters part, right? You've seen those cartoons, haven't you, of Moses as a little boy in the bathtub and he's parting the waters in the bathtub? (laughs) Have you seen those? I think it's the far side or one of those. I love that kind of stuff, right? Right? The waters are parted. The people, think about this. Think about this. You know, Cecil kind of got it right, you know. Here's the, the water's part of There's all these fish and jellyfish and things flopping around on the bottom there. They don't know what to do. Are you going to walk into that? You know, think about how scary that is to walk through that valley. And yet the people get through to the other side. And then one more wave of the hand. That's all it takes is two waves of the hand because it is God's power at work. And the sea crashes in and envelops the Egyptian army. And so now... Not only has Pharaoh brought upon his people, his land, all these terrible plagues, right? Inflation has gone up and you can't find cheap fried chicken anymore. And, and, and there's nobody to work. The whole economy has gone to you know where in a handbasket. And all the kids have been killed. And now the whole army's wiped out. 
Wouldn't you love to be Pharaoh going back to Egypt? Say, hey, Pharaoh, how are things going? Your, your popularity has dipped in the polls lower than any other Pharaoh in history, right? God rescues, God saves the people, right? And in that saving of the people, what happens? Not only are the people saved, but most importantly, the Egyptians finally know who God is. The Hebrews finally know who God is. And God's might, God's glory, God's plan for creation, God's plan to create, to make a people to live in happiness, peace, prosperity, to make all people live in that, that plan is saved. And then, I, let me just give you a little teaser here, right? I'll do like they do on the evening news, right? They come on the evening news. There's a great new invention, and in a moment we're going to tell you about the invention. And then a few minutes later they say, there's a great new invention, you're going to love it. And then in a few moments later you keep let, you know, living through the commercials interminably, and they finally say, there's a great new invention, water has been created, good night, Bob, boom, done. Okay, so... What's going to happen is the people get through the Red Sea and they get out into the wilderness and you know the first thing they do? Complain. They complain. <laughs> they turn again. Moses, we didn't, we didn't plan on this. We, nobody taught us how to camp out here in the wilderness. Anyhow, so that's the story. What, do you, what, what rises up for you in all of this? We have a little time for conversation. And we have the lovely uh, Vanna Dixon ready to take the, um, the microphone around. Yeah. If you've got something you'd like to ask or comment on, raise a hand and catch her attention so we can get this on the tape. What, what, what's exciting about this to you? Nothing. Okay. Well, let's go back to sleep. Okay. Here we go. Thank you, Ellen. Yes. Yes. Would you like to choose what's behind door number one or number two or number no? Oh, I like number three. Number three. There we go. <laughs> uh, no, what's, what has fascinated me about this entire story is when the Israelites and all those who went with them, mm -hmm. it talked, there was a number given earlier of 300,000 or more. Mm -hmm. Just the idea, this must be all metaphorical then. In, in a, a way, way, yeah. yeah. Because... How do you move a mass like that in a short period of time? Yeah. That just fascinates me. Yeah, yeah. Good question. God um, is power. When we, in the Bible, when we start, start talking about huge numbers, um, in a sense, we have to take those uh, with a grain of salt from a literal perspective, okay? Um, in ancient times, it would have been it's even hard for us today to actually count people, right? Have you read about, I mean, the United States census is accurate, uh, you know, to a degree of, you know, a, a couple million, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, it's hard to count people. Uh, when we start getting to the huge numbers, like the age of Methuselah, maybe, right, or hundreds of thousands, what we're meant to understand, it's everybody. It's a big, it's a big number. It's everybody. Um, lots of people have pointed out the fact that you cannot move 300,000 people in one night with no notice, right? 
You simply, you simply can't do that, right? Let's go back to the, to the 2007 Witch Creek fires here when 750,000 people evacuated, okay? Most of us had a, a, a little bit of warning. Even those with no warning could simply go get in the car and drive away. That's not what it was. So most people will suggest that, that maybe it, it was 10, 20, 30,000 at the most, right? A large number went. And they also suggest that this did not happen in just a single 12 or 24 hour period, right? That it was over, over a longer period of time than that. But as the story is told, it all gets conflated down to one night, everybody left. And so people will point this out and say, there's no way that it's physically possible for 300,000 people uh, to, to move that quickly. Um, and they'll say, therefore, the Bible is just a story. It's a fairy tale. You can't believe it, okay? We need to understand that in ancient times, that, that it was very hard for, for people to deal with those huge numbers. Uh, there wasn't even a word for the number 1,000 for quite some period of human history. I can't tell you exactly how long, but people just knew there was a whole lot more than I could manage because almost nobody had to deal with a thousand of something or 10,000 something. For instance, when the Psalm says, you know, the Lord has 10,000 herds on the, on, on, on the sides of the hills in that Psalm, right? Was it literally 10,000? No, it's a bunch. He's got more than anybody else has got. Uh, so that's how we're meant to understand that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Good question to ask, though. Very, very good question to ask. Yeah, over here. Let's go to Penny. Okay, wait for the mic. Thank you, ma'am. Is there any truth in that uh, Moses' arms got tired and Aaron and they had to help hold his arms up? Have you ever heard that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That story. So, yeah, that Moses is holding as, as long as his hand is up, the waters will stay parted, right? And so Aaron helps hold his hand up. Uh, and, and, that's a piece of the story, could well be a literally true piece of the story, but think about the metaphorical sense of that. You know, no single leader is up to the task of leading the people. You need help. You need help. And so let's talk about your pledge cards. Um, no. <laughs> yes, over here. Get the, grab the mic. Um, Historians, I think in history, they say that there's no written record of this ever happening in Egypt, and they account for that because the Egyptians, <clears throat> the pharaohs, would never, wouldn't and couldn't ever entertain um, recording defeat. So sure. th th there's no, is there any change on that? I mean, what, what is your... No, th that? there are, so there are several aspects of that conversation. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, number one, we don't know all of, the re all of the history of Egypt because all we know is the parts that have been written, the parts that are on the little broken pieces and tablets of things and, on, and things like the Rosetta Stone and all that stuff. We don't begin to know all of the history of, of every single situation, right? An awful lot of the history that we know, that we say we know, is found in one inscription somewhere. And we say, that's historical. There is no record of this, okay? There are several ways to understand that. Number one, what you've just said, why would the Pharaoh commission a huge painting in a cave somewhere or in a, in a, in a pyramid somewhere or on a column somewhere in a temple that says, hi, we were stupid and we got wiped out? 
Okay, why would you do that? You wouldn't do that, okay? Another explanation, or another piece maybe of the explanation, is as far as, far as the Egyptians were concerned, this might have happened in sort of a different way, that there, were, there was a band of Hebrew slaves, but they had other slaves, and maybe it wasn't hundreds of thousands, maybe it was 20,000, right? Maybe it wasn't the whole army, right? And as far as Egyptian history goes, maybe this was a minor event as far as the Egyptians would see it. But obviously it's a major event, right, uh, for the Hebrew people. So there are some different ways to look at that. We also need to understand just because something is not verified in some other historical document doesn't mean that it's not historical. We have this historical document there's a lot of history that, that we say we believe, you know, so-and-so existed or such-and-such happened. We only have one source, maybe two sources for that. Here we have a written source that has been enlarged and expanded and conflated and talked about for a long, 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 long time. Why don't we trust that source? So science wants to distrust any source that has any faith element added to it. But frankly, every historical source has a faith element added to it right? History is written by the winners in order to support the position of the winners, not the losers. Once the losers start writing history, you get a different take on history, don't you? Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Okay, another hand. Okay, here to Ruth. Water cleanses, mm -hmm. and I think about baptism. Yes, yes. Water cleanses. Water represents several things as far as our tradition. It is the washing away of sin, right? The Hebrew people come out on the other side of the Red Sea, a changed people, right? At least for a while, until they make the golden calf, <laughs> right? And they go through the Jordan River. Um, our, our Baptist friends get this right when in baptism, they take a person and they drown you in the water. And I then you get here. resurrected up out of the water, right? And the other thing is, right? God wins. God wins. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that somewhere before. <laughs> God wins. What else do you see in this? Anything exciting? Yeah. Cool. All right, let's pray. God, thanks for being with us. Help us to face our own Egyptian armies and our own Red Seas with confidence in you so that we're not afraid and so that we fulfill your will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Happy Thanksgiving.